and um, she was in the hospital. She had gone down to her brother's wedding. They had planned it in the Dominican Republic, and she got really, really sick while down there, spent the wedding in the hospital, and uh, which is not a very great celebration, and came back, was feeling a little bit better, but ended up back in the hospital uh, catching some type of bacterial intestinal thing, possibly parasite, whatever. Um, they did release her. She went back home, but she is still recovering. Is that right, Betsy? She's, uh, I know that she went through a little bit of a rough day yesterday, but she was able to, to remain home, I guess. But just keep praying for her. She's not out of the woods yet, okay? And we just keep praying. Yeah. Do what now? Her birthday is on Wednesday, yeah. So, yeah, uh, many of you have our church directory. Send her a little birthday message. Text it to her, phone it to her, whatever. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. All right. Well, um, Chip Bueller has been uh, a friend of ours. Many of you don't know. When we, we started our church in 2000, Chip was right there with us. Uh, he was a frequent guest into our church, and uh, Chip and I both started out in campus ministry, and he was leading a, uh, and pastoring really a revival on the campus of the University of Richmond here, and uh, I was at Georgia Southern University uh, beginning to, to build a campus ministry down there, and we became good friends and uh, have remained very good friends over the 25 years. And uh, since then, Chip, we've got a little bio in your, in your bulletin you can read, but Chip has uh, been everywhere, gone everywhere, said everything. Uh, I don't know, but he's been amazing. And we've had a good time this weekend. We've had uh, several other times of gathering together, letting Chip minister. It's been phenomenal. And um, just to let you know, you know, we have two services, this morning service and a afternoon service. Many times we'll just share the same message in both services, but today Chip will be bringing a different message in the afternoon service. So if you'd like to come back, be a part of that, uh, that'd be awesome. We'd, lo we'd love to have you be a part of those who are coming out to our second service in the afternoon. We'd love for you to be a part of that also. But I want us to stand up. I want us to honor the man of God here this morning. <laughs> Pastor Chip, come on, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a privilege to be with the Watsons at Harvest Renewal Church. We met 1990-91 at a campus conference, and Doug would come to our campus to speak, and I'd go to his campus to speak, and so I showed up as a single college preacher, and then as an engaged man with my wife, and then pregnant woman and then toting babies and diapers and always staying with the Watsons because they pastored us. They loved us. They cared for us. And uh, so we've had years of journeys. It was 1992. I first prayed for people and did a Bible study right here. That's a long time ago. And I think I was sitting there calculating. So we've been hanging out 25 years, but we started showing up here when the elderly pastor of this building um, 
and the elderly congregation was shrinking and they opened their building for us to do prayer meetings and to join their Sunday night healing service. Uh, the pastor was believing to reach young people, believing to build for the future, um, and believing for God to show up. It was a denominational church, and he would do Sunday night healing services. And he started asking us to come join him Sunday night and pray for people. And then we started doing campus Bible studies and prayer meetings in here. And he ended up giving the building. He signed it over, gave it away. Um, said, if you'll, you know, find a pastor, and Doug and Cindy ended up coming and taking over here, and from the very beginning, and pastoring, and in those early years, there were some elderly folks left from the former church, and ever since, it's been a dream of multi-generational life, and faith, and kingdom living, and following the Holy Spirit, and so, a lot of history, um, and just a privilege to know Pastor Doug and Cindy Watson, and meet your leaders over this time. Uh, a lot of, lot of history, the whole drive out here. I've got memories on every street corner of things that took place through the years, and so we're just glad to be with you. My beautiful wife, Hope, is enjoying Mother's Day with her sons that uh, have her at church. They're blessing the seniors at our 11 o'clock service back home, and my baby boy is a senior in high school. So I have a daughter, Alexis, will be 24, She's married, lives in the area, about 30 minutes from us in Atlanta. I have a 21-year-old son, Samuel. Uh, he does ministry. He's in ministry school, uh, works a job, all kinds of stuff. And then Simeon, the baby boy, is as big as me and uh, brings joy to all of us. And so we do life in Atlanta. We travel from there. Uh, we live on offerings. We live by faith. We serve the community. Um, the Buellers are faith and family people. My father was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor, my wife's father was a pastor. Um, so we have histories of Bible and faith and family. And as we began to do campus ministry and plant churches, we realized how broken the families and how broken the relationships were. And so we made a priority of building godly marriages and focusing on men's and women's ministry and getting people healthy for relationships and long-term relationships and giving people, men the dream while they're single to be a one-woman man, to live their entire life loving and learning and serving and growing with one woman, and to be a one-man woman and to not live like this world. We were doing that 30 years ago. God was convicting us to live different in the world, to see different fruit, different results, and and so all of us were so blessed to meet each other and, and Jesus to reveal himself and for us to walk and serve together. And so faith and family was always a part of our journey. I've been stuck with football. I don't really even care about football, but I played college football at Richmond. I've coached football. I coach a varsity team at a Christian school in Atlanta. I still do it. It forces me to stay young. It forces me to speak to youth. It forces me to deal with parents that have issues. Um, it's a wonderful thing. So uh, we do that, and we've sown a number of years into foster kids. I worked five years with Goshen Valley Boys Ranch, 45 teenage foster boys. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So when we got out of the church and people weren't inviting us to do marriage and family seminars, we said, how are we going to affect the, city, the families of Atlanta? And a door opened to serve foster kids and foster parents, and so we did that. And now we're transitioning back to serve and be friends with folks like you. Now that our kids are graduated, 
We're enjoying the faith journey of diving back in to focus on what God is saying, what God is doing. If you have your Bible, why don't you open to Galatians 1. We're going to talk about the call of God. The call of God. As you open your Bible, friends, you all know Bill Bennett came here for Be Mosaic, one of my best friends, my big brother in the faith, the rhino of revelation, the gorilla of glory. I call him the kudu of kingdom living. When he preaches, he sweats so much, it's an African sign of wonder. He preached in my church in Tallahassee, Florida a number of years ago in July, and the HVAC had broken over the weekend because we met in an auditorium. It's like 100 degrees in there. Pastor Bill was preaching. He was five minutes into his introduction. It looked like a waterfall was flowing, just flowing from his beard. The lapel mic started zapping. Zzz. Bill goes, oh, I thought I was going to get electrocuted. Y'all know Bill? Were y'all here when Bill preached? Bill's my big brother. He's my friend in the faith. But he used to always say this, so I say it too. This word is alive. When you open it, it opens you. You may think you're searching it, but in reality, it's searching you. I love books. I got so many books at my house, you can't even get in some rooms. But this Bible is the only book that when you get into it, it gets into you. B.T. Forsyth said, if we're not going to use our Bibles, it's no use building our churches. We should build our churches not from the pastor down, but from the Bible up. See, many people have the mistaken idea that hearing a good sermon, getting a prophetic word, having a blessed Bible study is what makes us grow and gets God's blessing. It's not just hearing, but the believing and the doing that accesses the stuff that we need. Too many Christians mark their Bibles, but their Bibles don't mark them. God wants to mark us today. And it's not by something I say. It's by something that he said that we will hear and trust and believe. That's what we're after. Galatians 1, 15 and 16, the call of God. One of my favorite passages of scripture. One of my favorite verses. Paul the apostle, journeying for missions, believing he's to go back to the churches in Asia and preach. And everywhere he goes, the door shuts and the Holy Spirit says no. You can go study it in the next chapter of Galatians. They actually got so sick on their apostolic journey, they couldn't go forward. They were forced to stop and stay through sickness. And then they went backwards. And then when he went backwards, he had a vision, and God said he was going to send him a whole different direction to a whole different group of people than what he thought he was here for. And sometimes God does redemptive realignments, and he changes your direction. And he removes your dreams and, and, he, and he transforms your ambitions to holy ambition where your desire and vision and God's desire and vision where your passion and his calling are one and the same. The call of God. And when, when, when Paul actually reached there, this is what he wrote. He said, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, And called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. That I might preach him among the Gentiles, the lost, the nations, diverse peoples, peoples that don't know him. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. But it says what I did was I went to Arabia 
and I went to Samaria or something like that. And then he said three years later, he went back up to Jerusalem. Let's open with prayer. Father, would you give us your heart and eyes? Would you mark us with the word of the Lord? Would you invite us into your call, the call of God? The invitation of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of your will and purpose in our life. Would you be glorified to communicate that with us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. The call of God. God invites every one of us to join what he's doing. We're called according to his purpose. I want to talk to you about the call of God. And the call is a call to the priority of faith. There's a call to the privilege of life, called to the purposes of God, and to the power of devotion, the power of heart devotion. Let's start with the priorities of faith. But when it pleased God, see, faith begins in time. Faith begins in seasons. God is a God of seasons. He's a God of clocks and calendars. Seasons don't change because of clocks and calendars. They change because of revelation and truth. When God reveals something to us, the season changes. When we embrace and obey the truth, the season can change. And so things are governed. Timing becomes everything. And you have to have faith in your season to make it to the next season. There's people who are in unbelief and are in fear. It's usually because of a difficult season that they choose not to trust or believe God again. So every season, it's important to have faith. But when, it's a time word. I can't preach on the call of God if we don't deal with the times and seasons. See, today, the world and the church is just so obsessed with chronos and eschaton time. Chronos time is your clocks and your calendars. That's chronos, the ticking of the clock. It's the same. It only moves forward. And we're governed by it. We're dominated by it. There's eschaton, eschatology, end times, last times. People are hyperventilating about that. All that is, you ever drink a glass Pepsi? You got to have a glass. If it's a tin can, you don't get the end times. <laughs> but when you drink a Pepsi or a drink, a Sprite, a Mountain Dew, whatever, and you know how you're drinking when you first tip it up? It goes bloop, bloop, bloop. But what happens when it gets down to the end? It speeds up. That's eschaton time. When God's finishing a work in the earth, when he's completing something, everything speeds up at the end because it's the ending of one thing and the beginning of another. Those are not the biblical emphasis of time in the Bible where we have faith. Because wherever there's an end in God, there's always a beginning, right? So that's not his priority and emphasis. And chronos time doesn't matter because you can lose 15 years of this in Old Testament prophets, and God will redeem those years in 23 days and revive Israel and transform things. He can restore this if you just go back to trusting him with a priority of faith, times and seasons. See, there's pleroma time, a fullness of time. There's kairos time. When there's an open door, there's a due season. It's now is the time. That's what it's talking about here. Opportunities of a lifetime. Leonard Ravenhill said, must be grasped in the lifetime of the opportunity. You see, you can miss a fullness of time. You can miss an open door, a season that God has for revival, for breakthrough. You can miss it and not get it back. 
But whatever happens with this clock and calendar, he can restore years and days. We got to recognize that. I told some of you, my son Simeon taught me this when he was in, he's 18 now, but when he was young, he came down, I'm in my prayer chair. He grabbed this corner of it and he did a little flip and went, dad, is today yesterday or is today tomorrow? It's my favorite story about him. I tell everybody I did what any good godly dad should do. I sat silent for a minute, confused, and I said, why don't you go ask your mom? (laughs) Is today yesterday or is today tomorrow? Preschooler, right? So I hear him up. Her her devotion room was upstairs. Now it's downstairs. And he comes running down. Boom, dad, today's tomorrow. I'm going somewhere. He only went to preschool every other day. They said, when you come back, Day after tomorrow, we're going to the zoo and getting ice cream. (laughs) When you know your time, when you know what day it is, when you know your season, you know what you ought to be doing. You know what your focus is. You know where you have to place your faith and your effort. God says you're single, 1 Corinthians 7, to secure undistracted devotion to Christ. So that then when you're married, you can serve and love your spouse in a unique way. So that then you can turn your attention to your kids. And then when your kids leave like mine are, then you still have love and you still have covenant both for God and for spouse and for family. But see, people today don't live in their season. They live single life as if they're married. They live married life as if they're single. you got to be faith, people, setting a priority in your season. It's the truth for all of us. But when it pleased God. See, there's a process to discipleship. God's not in a hurry. We need patience, endurance, and faith to grow and inherit the promises. The shortest route in life, Ravi Zacharias says, is not always the best route because it bypasses some of the most precious life lessons and opportunities for Christ-like character development. Seasons, they say when you're 10 years old, you want to be adventurous. If you're 20, you want to be romantic. 30, you want to be married 40, you want to be wealthy. 50, you want to be successful. 60, significant. 70, healthy. And at 80, you just want to wake up. I'm hitting that 50. You know, this is what the world says. There's a a time and a season for everything. Have faith in your season. But see, there's more to the priority of faith than just the season you're in. There's There's this pleasing of God. But when it pleased God, see, Christianity is not to be lived at a level of trying to earn acceptance from God and trying to convince yourself that he loves you. You were accepted in the beloved when you were a filthy, wicked sinner. You were accepted in the beloved when you were nothing. God so loves the entire planet and all the lost sinners in it that he gave everything for that. His love and acceptance is set. Christianity is not about love and acceptance. It's about approval and pleasure. Galatians 1.10, just before this. Am I living to be approved by God or approved by man? Am I living to please God or am I living to please man? Because I'm loved and accepted, I live for the divine approval, for the well done, not good and successful servant, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful son, good and faithful daughter. I'm in the book now. Pastor Chip's happy right now. We're talking Bible. This is good stuff because our God is good. It's about pleasing him. First Thessalonians 2, 4. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. Enoch walked with God and pleased him. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please him. This priority of faith accesses pleasure. It pleases the Lord that his ministers and his ministering messengers and angels do what pleases him. Psalm 103, 21. Church is about pleasing him. He sets you, 1 Corinthians 12, 18, in the body, in the church, in the body of Christ, where it pleases him. Christian life is about his joy, his pleasure. When we get that figured out, everything changes. I'm not living for me, myself, and I. I'm not living for the approval of other people. I'm living for God's approval. And his approval is about authenticity. It's a Roman approval. It's to cut the coin. Are you authentic, valuable money, or are you counterfeit? The word approval in the scripture, it was about biting the coin to see if there was actual real metal on the inside or if it was just a fake mud coin. Counterfeit. Is the stuff in you? Is God in there? Is it real? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Did the faith transform your life? So many other good things in there, but when it pleased God. But this basically comes down to the God, the God factor. We believe in the one true living God and it changes everything. That's what our faith is in. See, we live in a day when it's really cool to look for God, but it's not cool at all to find him. But I found him and I know him and he's not like they think he is. It's not a Democrat or the Republican God. It's the one true living God. See, A.W. Tozer says what comes to your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. The most neglected subject in the kingdom of God is God himself. Psalm 34, 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me. See, I believe God's called me. I went to Fuller Seminary's missiological church planting and leadership school. How's that sound? I'm a missiologist. I've been to 40 nations evangelizing. That's wonderful. But I'm on a mission to get God big again. I want to reach Christians for Christ. I've preached to thousands at college campuses and thousands in foreign nations. I want to go to churches and reach Christians for Jesus. I want to see everything else fall by the wayside. I want to see him come front and center. I want to see us begin with him and end with him because he's the alpha and the mega. I want to see it different than the way Western Christianity has been operating in humanistic ability and control. There's something better than that. See, all of our fret and worry comes because we calculate, Oswald Chambers says, without God. We try to figure things out without him in the equation. It's not great faith we need, but faith in the one true living God, the great God. That's what we're talking about. So, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Romans eleven thirty three. there is so much in God. Theology ought to be central in our life. Not studying intricate details of baptism and all the opinions of, of differing generational doctrine. Theology is theos logos, studying the character and nature of God to know who he really is. Because when we see him, we're transformed from glory to glory to the same image. The call of God is about the priority of faith. That's the beginning point. But then there's the perspective, the privilege of life. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb. Oh, I like the privilege of life. It's not white privilege. It's not black privilege. It's the human race privilege of being created in the image and the likeness of God. Being ordained to be here. 
Not because mom and dad liked each other. Before dad had a twinkle in his eye. Before he got a Starbucks card and invited mom on a date. Before mom got a mani-pedi. I don't even know what that is. Somebody mentioned that. Did I say that right? I still chew my fingernails. I don't know how y'all do that stuff, but... Are we okay here? You know? Before she... Back in my day, my wife would use like a whole can of hairspray and there'd be hair and hairspray all over the bathroom wall. And it's like you, it wouldn't hit you. You ladies remember that? And you're shh. And you're like, and that's because I still had the mullet and she still had the fro in the 90s. When we got those haircuts in the 80s, it was cool. But in the 90s and around 2002, people were like, Pastor, you need to cut your hair. What are you talking about, Pastor Chip? Jesus says, Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit says, before I was born, Paul writes in Ephesians, before I was born, you chose me. You separated me from my mother's womb. Separation is a sanctification term, a choosing term, a calling term. Paul in the call, separated from my mother's womb, the privilege and gift of life, the miracle of birth, the sacredness of sex, the supernatural call from conception, the sacrament of marriage, the sanctity of life. All of this is biblical stuff. See, I went to Richmond and I was educated in health science. I was a science major. So I learned these things. 400 to 600 million microscopic seeds started a race one day. Have I told this story here? It's true of every one of you. 400 to 600 million. I could take you through the math. I actually have the math here of the, of the 200 million that don't make it, the one in 600 million, the 20% that can't finish the race, the 99.9% of the mother's eggs that will never fully develop, the 7 million eggs at 20 weeks, the 1 million minus 2,000 per month is less than 500. One in 13 million is the chance that you would be you. You can take the math from me if you want. I do that stuff all the time. You're a spirit having an earthly encounter. You're not just a human being looking for a spiritual experience. 400 to 600 million started a race one day. Only one completed the race. The odds were 1 in 13 million that you would be alive, that you would be you. Your parents may have decided to have you or they may have not decided to have you, but God decided to send you. You're on assignment. You're cut to pattern. Your hips, your lips, your hair, your non-hair, your gray hair. Doug and I spend all our time talking about losing our glasses and plucking our gray hairs. Wouldn't have any left. Before the meeting yesterday, I walked in the restroom, thank God, I had like a two-foot gray hair. Just, where did that come from? I haven't seen it and I got a haircut. I've been, it just, you know, I actually, last time I got a haircut, I asked the lady that does my hair, I said, I keep plucking out the grays. Will they ever grow back? You know, she says, oh, yeah, yeah, you can pluck. I said, okay, I'm just going to keep. The seasons change, don't they? I'm, at, I'm here on the privilege of life. I'm, I'm, I'm still with it. I'm just glad to be here. Someone took a picture of me preaching in Florida a month ago. I had my full gray beard. It's all gray. When I saw how old I looked, I went home between the services and shaved the whole thing off. I showed up at the evening service. I had like a rash. You know, I hadn't shaved all winter. Because I recognized the privilege of life. 
I'm younger than I look. At least I believe that in the spirit. What are you talking about, Pastor Chip? I'm sure there's a point to all this. One of my favorite quotes, Randall Jarrell, soon we shall know everything the 18th century did not know and we will know nothing the 18th century did know and it's going to be very hard to live with us. We've lost some stuff, friends. Yeah, Tozier had a truth. What comes to our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis quoted something similar to that and he says, no, how God thinks of us is not only more important than how we think of him, it's infinitely more important. When we talk about the privilege of life, we're talking about how God thinks of us. Working with foster kids, I learned very quickly, there is no such thing as illegitimate children. God ordains life. God sanctifies life. God separates us from our mother's womb. There is illegitimate parents. How this planet can create a cuss word to name illegitimate children for the illegitimacy of the parents, I have no comprehension. We ought to reverse that thing. And I've seen it in kids from the worst circumstances. Kids that don't just don't have a father and don't... Let's go beyond to not having a mother and now let's go beyond to not having a single living relative that will relate to you. And yet God gives them life and he chooses them and he sends them. Eternal beings. You were blessed before you were in your mother's womb. Ephesians, uh, I think I quoted it the other day, Ephesians... Um, one, it says God has, past tense, blessed you with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Jesus Christ. So if you're in Christ, you have access to all those blessings. The word in the Greek is eulogia, to eulogize. See, we wait till somebody dies, and then we decide to try to figure out every nice thing we can say about them. God's the opposite of us. It says before you were in your mother's womb, read Ephesians 1 like four times. It says before the foundation of the world, that's before your mom and dad had a date, okay? It says he blessed you then. He eulogized you then. That means Jesus stood up in eternity past before the foundation of the world and he already gave your eulogy. He already said what you were going to do. Every good and godly thing, he already prophesied it. He already proclaimed it. He already said it. He already put it into the atmosphere. That's what the Bible says. And then we think I'm here and I don't know what to do. Let's just stop and listen to what he said. Oh, that's what he said. Right? Oh, there it goes. You know, following his word, following his heart, following the spirit, moving that way, knowing how God really feels about us, not only determines how we live our lives, but it determines how we treat other people. See, I don't, I don't love the, a homosexual and a lesbian or love an atheist because I have to to evangelize them and get them to heaven. I do it because they're a special creation like I am. I do it because the human race has the privilege of life. And that's why I love multiculturalism. My little brother was a basketball guy. And, um, but he's married. He's, he's like me. So I guess that's white. But he's married to an African-American. And so the things that Rifle was saying, you know, it's like they talk about, well, what's he supposed, their kid's supposed to be on the birth certificate. And it's funny because they have to declare that at the birth and one of them looks black and one of them looks white. But they're created by God. They're blessed of him. And for those who have religious lies, there was never once, even in the, under Old Testament legalism, a prohibition against in multicultural or interracial marriages. 
Anyone who says that doesn't know an ounce of Bible. There was a prohibition against a believer marrying an unbeliever. A believer marrying someone from a culture that worshiped false gods and idols. Those were the only prohibitions. And the same ones account for the New Testament. And so we have to recognize the human race, the privilege of life, the blessing of being here. Oh, this is for us. This is for moms. Moms are blessed in this. They live this that should be a part of all marriage and family. True love germinates in the soil of sacrifice, sprouts in the garden of surrender, and matures in a matrimony of servanthood. That's Valentin. Love isn't love until it costs you something and you give it away. I wrote a blog once. You can look it up on one of our websites. It's titled, No Sam's Mom. It was my tribute to my wife on a Mother's Day many years ago. See, when the kids in the neighborhood built a fort that I could see from my front door out in the woods and built it up there, you know how all the the, the, um, elementary boys get together and build the giant tree fort and spray paint it? And usually in the girl's hallway bedroom, there's a sign where the girl has the rules. No boys allowed in the room and, you know, take your shoes off. You know, my daughter had this whole list. If you, were gonna, if you were dad or if you were one of the boys, you had to follow the list of rules. But the boys build a fort, right? And on the fort was spray-painted, not no girls allowed. It was painted, no Sam's mom. That was my wife. My son Sam was helping build the fort. When they got together and made their club, they said, everybody's allowed except your mom. Because she's going to always ask us how we're doing and she's going to pray for us. And if we do something, she's going to come talk to us about it and say, you know, you need to go say you're sorry. Let's go talk to your mom and dad about that. And Right? See, God knows what mom he's separating you from in that womb. Moms, you are something special. You bring the privilege of life. Talked to my wife last night. She says, yeah, I haven't heard from... You know, so-and-so and so-and-so, oh, it's okay. I only carried them for nine months and only birthed them for 18 hours and then only hurt for the next year and then only, and, and all that. And she stopped me and she said, isn't it awesome? <laughs> moms. G.K. Chesterton says this about moms. The human house is a paradox. It's larger inside than out. When we step out of the home and pass from private to public life, we pass from a greater work to a smaller one, from a harder work to an easier one. It's why most modern people would rather serve the minor needs of hundreds or thousands of different people than having to meet the major needs of just one person or develop the character of just one child that carries her name, right? Whoever makes herself responsible for one small baby will soon find she's wrestling gigantic angels and demons. All of this stuff going on in politics and economics and education, it's about the privilege of life. They're trying to find it somewhere else in how God created us and in the family that God wants us to have. And so if mom and dad failed you, well, David had that. He was an illegitimate son. He was hidden from his dad, from the prophet. You can go back and study the genealogies, different mom, all that kind of stuff. And David's the one who would work alone and worship God. And he would say, if mom and dad forsake me, if they reject me, the Lord will take me up. So the privilege of life is God has destiny in you from conception, from history past, for the purposes you're going to discover in your lifetime here. And he has the family for you. And if that family breaks and if that family doesn't work, he's got spiritual family for you. And he'll be your Abba. And he'll marry you if you're a single woman and be your husband. Right? So that's the privilege of life.
And then there's the purpose of God. Is this okay for you? When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach or testify of him among those who don't know him. The grand and glorious subject of biblical preaching is the unfathomable riches of Christ. We're not preaching ourselves, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We don't preach ourselves. We're not selfish. We're not humanistic. But we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. The purposes of God. By this point in Paul's life, he had his Acts 9 radical conversion experience. Um, The next point will come to us. Uh, He chose um, not to go confer with flesh and blood or to go to Jerusalem or to go to those who were pastors and apostles before him. But he ran back to find his Old Testament scrolls. He went three years to the wilderness. He went back to his old home church where he could study in the basement and he spent time in the wilderness hiking and fasting and praying, rereading all the Old Testament until he saw Jesus and God's plan in everything that had been written. And as he did that, he came up out of the wilderness and he opened up the Torah in Arabia and he found the place he was seeking. He couldn't see the place he had found because Jesus Christ was right there in the Old Testament word. Jesus Christ now came between Paul and everything. He went to Arabia with Moses and the prophets and Psalms in his knapsack. He returned with Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians in his heart and on his lips. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Called by God, called by his grace to reveal his son Jesus in me. I wasn't called to be a pastor of a church. I wasn't called to be the boss of a business or the head coach of a football team. I was called to have Jesus revealed in me and through me. You weren't called to pick the level of the rungs of the ladder that you climb. It's wonderful when you're blessed and when you're prospered and biblical principles and characters will prosper you at times. But that's not what you're called and predestined for. You're predestined for Jesus to be revealed, the fruit of the Spirit to increase, for you to be more like him. In Christ is 160 times in the writings of Paul. He saw himself in Christ in everything, identity in Christ, purpose, called by his grace. See, it's a wonderful thing that you are called by his grace and the scripture says that you have ministry by mercy. And it's good that it says that because that means if you have a calling or if you do ministry, it has nothing to do with you. He could call you by your wisdom. He could call you by your strength. He could call you by your character. He could put you in ministry because you were faithful. He could put you in ministry because you're awesome. He could put you in ministry because you look good or wear the right clothes or have the right tattoos or fix your hair properly at the right time or you know the right way to communicate with the right people, political correctness, so that everybody thinks that you're okay. You could do it that way or you could just do it because he is it. He calls you by his grace and puts you in ministry by mercy so that you won't faint, so you won't wear out, so you won't burn out. Because I'm not in ministry because I'm smart and wise. I'm in ministry because he's wise. I'm not here because I'm strong. I'm here because he's strong. Right? And when you start finding everything in him, you know, not many this, not many that are called. I'm in the calling verses. You can go in there. He's not just talking about someone else. He's talking about me and you. (laughs) Sometimes we have to be humbled. I thought I was smart till I read the Bible. And then I realized, well, I couldn't really be called like this if I was as smart as I thought I was. i got to have purpose according to his grace. Why? Because that makes me humble. 
It makes me gentle with those who are struggling and suffering. It makes me care about those who are going through trouble. Not to just go, oh, they're just reaping what they sowed. That's just happening because of who they are and what they did. But by the grace of God, so would we. It's supposed to make us compassionate servants. Supposed to make us identify with them. See, it's good to consider your ways and others, but it's far better to just consider Jesus. The purpose of God is to reveal His Son in us and to allow us to be a living witness, a vision that others see, a mediator that when they see you in the fruit of your life and how you live your life in your faith and how you relate to people convicts them and draws them to ask questions. Always be prepared. First Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to defend the hope of Jesus and the resurrection that's inside of you to them that ask. If we always have to force our evangelism, we just aren't living these types of things the right way. When you live this stuff, people actually will ask you questions. Right? I believe in doing both. I believe in going out to evangelize, but also responding and caring for people who are drawn to what God is saying and doing. But ultimately... I could talk a long time about the purpose of God. I want to move to the conclusion, which is the power of devotion. Your pastors live this. I believe in pastoral care. I believe in getting counseling if you need counseling. I believe in getting education. I've got quite a few degrees. I believe in getting help. I believe in reading books. I believe in going to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Almost all the promises of the Bible are plural pronouns. You won't get that stuff all alone. You get that stuff in marriage. You get that stuff with your uh, prayer partners and your, and your accountability partners in your small group and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and so we have to have each other. We need each other for us to f- have fulfillment and to have accomplishment. The problem is we live in a generation where people are starting to go to people for things rather than going to God for things first. Notice that I said first. I go to both, but you've got to begin by going to God. This is what Paul says. He meets Jesus. He sees him. He hears him. He realizes everything I'm doing is wrong and everyone I'm persecuting, getting stoned and throwing in jail is right and they know God through Jesus and I don't know anything. With all my degrees and all my lifelong studies, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm a Greek multicultural instructor and I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees and and everything's wrong. I thought I ought to do these things for religion, he says in Acts. You're in real danger when your thinking tells you what you ought to do and has nothing to do with reality or how we're supposed to live truth and relate to people. But when this thing hit Paul and that confusion came on him that my whole life is a lie, I'm religious. Our world says create your identity. Be whoever you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. You can't do that. You need to be called to it. You need to be gifted in it. You need to be a faithful steward of it. You need to cultivate, live it, grow it. And everybody can't do everything, right? You can't create your own identity. I played football. Some of you wouldn't last one minute at football practice. I love music. I baptize 70s and 80s rock and roll tunes on my guitar and create scriptural songs to sing. Jesus is back, you know. I, I, can, I can baptize all kinds of rock hits and I've got my own lyrics because 
but you don't want to hear me sing and you don't want me playing my guitar in here. No matter how much my whole life's dream has been in a rock band. That's just all I ever wanted to do. I told you all about my band in high school, Buckwheat's Bad Times. I'm not going to go there. I think we laughed like 15 minutes when I told those stories yesterday. Golly, I played a real electric guitar. My brother had one of those play drum sets that, that uh, you know, like second, second graders play. And then I had played drums in the sixth grade band. Rat, tat, rat, tat, rat, tat, tat, tat. And he put my real snare and he would put on shades and just hit everything as hard as he could. God, I wanted to be in a rock band, but, but I'm no good. I'm not gifted. I'm not called. I don't have the ability. I'm too big. Every time I would step on the pedal to get more distortion, I'd break it. Every time I got happy and hit that bar chord, I'd break two strings. And it doesn't sound the same when all you know how to play is the top two and you mute the others, right? Y'all know, I know my rock and roll. But you break one of the only two strings you know how to play, it's just exposed right there, live. We, we paid every, every teenager we knew in Tallahassee to come yell and vote for us at the First Baptist Church talent show. We had a whole crew in the back with shade. I can't believe I'm here. Power of devotion. I was devoted to music. I dreamed of it. I loved it. I played that guitar all the time at home. I was no good. I go to church with Third Day. Daniel Bash is our worship leader. There are people writing music everywhere around me. I teach about it. I'm sitting here and I'm going, man, why did I ever think I would do some of that? I mean, just gifts just flowing and songs writing and stuff they're playing. And I'm sitting there going, I guess I'll just preach with my hoarse voice and a big sweaty forehead. I'll just be me. You know, the American Idol syndrome. So see the... Just do what you want to do and have fun doing it. That's what we're all doing. One is the American Idol. 10,000 are losers. Most of you should have never tried out. You got no hope in music. It's never going to work. Find something you can do. Find a Billy, right? So the world's going to create your identity. Religion that Paul's in that makes you stay alone with God when you need people's help and makes you go to people who can't help you when you need to go to God for help wants you to earn your identity by working harder, by trying more, by doing more. That's what religion does to you. That's where Paul was when he saw this, right? God wants you to receive your identity by seeing who he is, by seeing who you are not, and by hearing and seeing who he says and shows you you are and living and walking in that received identity. That's what he has for us. The power of devotion. I didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood. Pastor Chip's talking about heart devotion. True love changes everything. Intimacy brings influence. Open heavens, a rent veil, an open door. Brothers and sisters, if his presence doesn't go with us, if his presence isn't on us, if his presence isn't with us, nothing makes us different than the other people in this planet. It was David Brainerd, the missionary, that said, Lord, let let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. That's powerful. He said that after he had fasted and prayed and journaled. Oh, for one hour, alone with God, 
It's infinitely exceeding all the pleasures and delights of this lower world. Martin Luther leads a reformation. He just spent years weeping and being broken because he realized I'm justified by faith and I have intimate relationship with God. And my God is my dad. And he said, oh Lord, if I could just understand and believe the first two words of the Lord's prayer, I would never be the same and neither would this planet. My father, our father in heaven. The power of devotion. What I've had deepened in me in meetings and the journeys I've had is the blessedness and the necessity of realizing the presence of the Lord Jesus everywhere at all times. You realize the promise from Genesis to Revelation more than any other is I will be with you. I am with you. The promise of his presence is in every mandate, in every challenge, and in every calling throughout the Old Testament. Moses says, they won't listen to me. I stutter, send Aaron instead. And God's answer is, I will be with you. When Haggai thinks he's too young, he says, I will certainly be with you. You go through the callings and he's always promising his presence. And we get down to the New Testament Great Commission and everyone loves to preach. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations and all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. I preached it for 25 years as a preacher and I never preached the next phrase. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of time. The only reason we do that stuff is because he's here right now because he's with us, because his presence is, is real. Friends, the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. What he writes on our hearts are not doubts and opinions, but assertions, truths, revelations, sure and more certain than what we sense or life itself. God has some great stuff for us, friends. I want you to go back to the power of devotion. I want you to go back to going to God first and then being led by him to send you to people and to get the other stuff you need. Because if we go to him first, there's going to be an increase of his will in the earth and the things that he can manifest that people cannot. We've talked about the call of God is about a priority of faith. It's embracing the privilege of life. It's walking and living the purposes of God. And it's building our life on the power of devotion. Gaither wrote, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Each day is like heaven, my heart overthrows. Overflows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. We need once again to remove the distractions, put ourselves at the feet of Jesus, and allow his reality to break forth onto our lives and into our hearts. Friends, at some crisis point in life, You're going to have to choose between human approval and divine approval. You're going to have to choose to trust yourself, to distrust others, or to believe God. I'm asking you to decide now. Some of you are going God's way and calling yourself a Christian, but you only go God's way when he goes your way. If he goes or speaks a different way, you either hesitate, you wait, or you turn. Some of you just go your own way 
and you call it God's way. It's in every church in this nation. God wants to break through that facade and break through to touch your heart and to change it where you say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my way, but your way alone. All in Christ, in Christ alone. I'm hoping that as we conclude in prayer here that you're going to say, I'm going to go God's way. I'm going to obey God's call no matter what. No matter what. Sometimes when you get overwhelmed, we forget how big God is and how real he is. I have a friend, Pastor Elijah, in Uganda. I was supposed to be there the last two weeks. I had to cancel because of some vocal cord issues I've been adjusting to. Sent the teaching pastor of the church that I attend and some of my friends went and ministered to thousands of pastors. It started off as orphan outreaches. Pastor Elijah sat in a sushi restaurant with me in Atlanta as we talked about these opportunities. And, and he says, Brother Chip, he says, I was called of God. When I was a teenager and everyone was an orphan. And God said, take care of the children. 85% of the men are dead. Whether Idi Amin, whether Muslim terrorists, or whether AIDS just wiped out. Almost everyone's under 16 years of age and orphans. If you saw Machine Gun Preacher, it was about the kids there. I don't agree with doing it that way, but I think we need to do something. And he told me, he says, God told me, he called me. He says, take care of the children. So I went to my mother and I said, the Lord told me to take care of the orphans. And my mom says, the Lord told me that three years ago. (laughs) Moms, no. (laughs) Real moms do. So he starts taking in the orphans for the first couple of years. And he said, I thought I would get 10, 20, 40, but when he got into 300 and 400 orphans coming and they're building tents and makeshift huts and trying to figure out how do we clothe them? How do we feed them? What do we do with this? God called me to do this. What am I going to do? The power of devotion. The need was so great. The impossibility so real. He couldn't just go to somebody to ask for help. He had to go straight to God. So he says, I started, I said, I'm going to fast and pray all day till God reveals it to me. He said, I lasted 10 minutes and God convicted me. And in the still small voice, I felt like God said, go to the Muslim mosque and ask for help. They're orphaned because of the militant Muslims. He says, he, go, he, he looks across the sushi restaurant. I'm having a nice piece of sushi. He goes, he goes, brother Chip, I obeyed God. And he says, two days later, I arrived at the mosque. I, I, my sushi fell out. I said, you, you didn't ride across the street? You didn't catch a taxi across? He says, no, it was a two-day walk to the mosque. Welcome to faith. The privilege of every life. The purpose of God. The power of devotion. He goes, I walk in. He says, on the wall is a want, is wanted signs. The middle is a giant picture of him. <laughs> in the entrance, the imam comes out and he says, God told me to take in the orphans. God told me to care for them. I need help. We don't have food. We don't have medicine. We don't have shelter. He said, by the time we left, they had loaded four trucks, totally full, hauled it out. He said, we had everything we need for six or eight months for the kids. He says, we arrived back at the place two-day walk, a two-hour drive, whatever it was. And, and the guys get out and they hand him the keys to the nicest truck and they leave and not one of them ever recognized who he was. 
I didn't eat any more sushi. I was just listening to the stories. And he goes, Brother Chip, and he goes, and some people say there is no God. I went home and got sanctified and filled with the sweet Holy Ghost. I just went, we get overwhelmed. We get so selfish. We get so me-centered and circumstance-centered. We forget how big God is. The God of the Bible walks with us. The God of the Bible sent us here. Mom and dad decided to have you. God decided to send you. He's with you here right now. Father, right now, we just pray that your word would be received with meekness and humility into our hearts and souls. That we would never live in fear and insecurity. We would not live in anxiety. We would not live in selfishness. We would not live in control. We would not have to make our own way. But the beginning today, we will just receive of you because it's our time and season to live and walk in who you are and how you created us and why you sent us and in how we operate every day by the power of wholehearted, yielded, surrendered devotion to the one true living God. Would you be glorified in what we're doing here? And would you have your way in every life? Would Amy Carmichael's song and prayer Be our testimony. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, and the passion that will burn eternally like fire. And let you receive all the glory. If you're in here today and you say, I've gone God's way when he's gone my way, but then I get afraid, we're worried about what people will say, or worried what will happen to my bank account, or you've been going your own way and you're hitting dead ends and you're bumping into walls and the doors are closing and the the debt is rising and you want to join others that are here today that are saying we want to go God's way no matter what, would you just raise your hand where you are? Why don't you all just stand up where you are as they're leading us in worship? Father, I just pray for these brothers and sisters that are here today. Lord, there is no guilt, there is no condemnation in Christ, but Lord, there's a conviction that you have more for us now. And so Holy Spirit, would you meet us? Lord, I just pray over every person who raised their hand, I pray right now that the smile of your face and the kiss of your presence and the breath of your holiness would be breathed into their lungs. Let the shalom peace of God bring wholeness, freedom, deliverance, and restoration. Lord, I pray for these as they've stood in faith. They now stand in their season and time. And I ask that you would restore years and weeks and days from the things that were hesitated or were walked away from. And Lord, we just thank you for testimonies of Jesus and of your faithfulness to come from us. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Praise your Father. Before we leave...